Paul, in his various letters, says that marriage is a picture of Christ and his church, us. And so the significance is not just in what we get out of marriage and what it does on a human level, but it has spiritual significance because it shows us the greatest union ever, which is us to Christ. You can also see the significance of marriage by going back to the beginning of everything. In the garden, Satan goes after, he, he begins his assault on humanity by going after the marriage relationship, in a sense. He goes to Eve, he tempts her to, to disbelieve what God has said, and in that situation, Adam fails as the husband. Adam should have stepped between his wife and the danger and said, not having it. But he failed. So one of the things that we need to do this morning in recognizing the significance of what marriage means and and seeing how Christ has done what Adam failed to do, we need to make that connection. Adam failed in the garden. Christ succeeds for his bride. So I want you to keep that paradigm in your mind as we look at what Christ has done. Remember that Adam, as the representative head of humanity, the covenant head, failed because he did not function as we see Christ functioning. He did not believe God. So as we see Christ, in all of his perfect obedience and example setting and modeling for us, husbands, take hope that even if you have, as I have, blown it and failed in the past, there is redemption in Christ And there is a model for us to follow. So we are going to spend our time this morning looking at how Jesus loves the church. And then next Sunday we'll apply this directly to the marriage relationship. So open your Bibles, if you haven't, to Ephesians chapter 5. And I'm going to read verses 25 through 27. And we'll begin for the morning. So it's Ephesians chapter 5, starting in verse 25. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. Let's pray together. Lord, we come this morning humbly before your word. And we open it together, we read it together, so that we can corporately and together put ourselves under the authority of your word. I have nothing of value to say apart from what your word says. So do not let me rely on my supposed wisdom. Do not let me speak from my own experience, but let me speak the words of Christ. And as we have the privilege now of looking to your word and seeing the way that Jesus Christ loved us, loved the church, gave himself for us, pray that this would motivate us for greater love and greater affections towards Christ. Please do this, Lord. Help us to love as we should. 
to know as we should. And we ask for your help in this. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Well, if submission, godly submission, characterizes how the wife is to respond to her husband, then love is what characterizes the way the husband is to respond to his wife. So we have this context here, this conversation needs to happen within the understanding that this is an example of love. This is how Christ loved the church. Which begs the question then, how did Christ love the church? And that's precisely what Paul is going to answer here in these three verses. So what I want to do is I want to draw your attention to three main things that come out of each of these verses. I don't always do a a neat, orderly structure. I know some of you would like that. Um, It's just not always the way we do it. But this Sunday it is. And so we're going to take verses 25, 26, 27, each one of those with a main emphasis for us. And so as we make these points, I'm, I'm putting it in personal terms. So the text says, Christ loved the church, gave himself for her. I'm saying Christ loved us. So if you belong to Christ... If the blood of Jesus has cleansed you from sin and you have a right standing before God, you are the bride of Christ, the church, which was purchased with the blood of Jesus. So when I say us in this context, I mean the church purchased by Jesus Christ. Following? So don't, don't get confused. It's not like Grace Bible Church is some special little thing. We're, we're talking about the body of Christ, the bride of Christ. So I want to notice something else. Before we dive into this, in this section, when Paul is comparing the, the role of a husband to what Jesus did and, and taking cues from that, he does not use the name Jesus. He uses the title Christ, which is the Greek word for Messiah or anointed one. And maybe you think, oh, good grief, it's the same. Why are you, hang on now. The difference is, I think, Jesus is his name. It's who he is. And that communicates to us this this personal uh, connection. Christ is not his last name. It is the title. Messiah, Savior, Anointed One. It is what he is. And so when Paul uses this language because of the comparison, I think... What he is doing is recognizing the fact that with title comes responsibility. (laughs) Name doesn't necessarily equate responsibility. Title equates responsibility. So as he's talking to the husbands, he is saying, just as Christ did this and took on the responsibility and the authority and the leadership in the spot, so you are to do the same thing. So we'll, we'll get into that more. I just wanted to make that comment. But let's start in verse 25, which we just read, and see the first point that I'm going to draw our attention to. Christ loved us in the past. Number one, Christ loved us in the past. Now I would imagine if we were to sit down and, and make a list of all the ways that Christ has demonstrated his love for us and to us and on our behalf, we could come up with a pretty good list, couldn't we? I mean, if you have eyes to see around you, you can see all of the ways that God, through Christ, shows his love to us. But I would imagine and hope that at the top of that list of everything Christ has done would be the atoning, substitutionary sacrifice 
of Christ. That what Paul calls the giving of himself. Therefore he says in verse 25 that Christ loved the church and gave himself for her. It is this act of sacrifice that we are focusing on in this point. He offers himself up and in this offering of Christ, it is and was and ever will be the greatest demonstration of love, which is why I think Paul is calling attention to this. Jesus himself made this claim in John 15 when he's talking about the fact that there's no greater love than anyone could have than he lays down his life for his friends. And now we read that statement and we go, man, that, that's, some, that's some big love. If, if you are laying yourself down for your friend, that is an act of sacrifice that is very, very significant, very serious and very meaningful. But what Jesus does goes beyond laying his life down for his friend. He lays his life down for his enemies. You wouldn't do that. I wouldn't do that. Not on our own. But the love of Christ is so rich and pure and strong that Romans 5 tells us, while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. I say that to draw attention to the magnitude of Jesus' love. This is not just some, oh yeah, I, yeah, I see that here and I see that here and whatever. This is awesome in every sense of that word. The love of Christ demonstrated on the cross while we were still sinners. To be a sinner is to be an enemy of God. To be an enemy of God is to be under His wrath. And to be under his wrath is to be justly condemned. So where is the hope? It's in Christ. Who in the past, before you or I ever showed up on the scene, laid his life down, gave himself up for us. This is love like no other. And I, I just am so desirous that in our, is that even a word? I strongly desire, we'll say it that way, that in this church, we never flippantly say, oh yeah, Jesus died for my sins. Know what you're saying when you say that. The, the, the significance of that statement. What does it mean that Jesus died for you? Sin forgiven, conscience cleansed, wrath removed, future secured, righteousness given. All of these things that you and I did not deserve, Christ accomplished and gave to us way in the past. In fact, many places in Scripture we see that this atoning sacrifice was in the mind and the plan of God before anything was even created. And so when Paul says Christ loved us and gave himself up, past tense, for us, he is referring to the sacrifice on the cross. And Paul tells us now in Ephesians 5 that these things happen not just for some kind of individual benefit, not just for some personal gain, but corporate. Christ gave himself for the church, his body. Unless he acts, unless Jesus does what only he can do, we have no hope. We have no future. 
we have no peace. But thanks be to God that he did. That he did act. He did sacrifice himself. He did give himself up for us. For you. To purchase you. And we're going to see why here in a moment. This is going to come more significant next Sunday as we talk about the role of the husbands. But notice Paul says that Jesus Christ gave himself up. Gave himself up. There wasn't this kicking and screaming to the cross, this digging in of the heels and just resenting the Father at every step because of this plan that had been put in place. Jesus Christ willingly gave himself up for his church because of his great love for us. Again, Jesus says this in John chapter 10, for this reason, this is verse 17, for this reason the Father loves me because I lay down my life that I may take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. There's no obligation, there's no resentment in the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. He willingly gives himself up. Philippians 2, I hope this is a familiar passage to you. Have this mind in yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God, a thing to be held on to, but what did he do? Remember? He emptied himself by taking the form of a servant and being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, he humbled himself and became obedient. He gives himself up for the church. And when we understand that, I, I don't want this to be some kind of a thing where we put an inordinate amount of emphasis on our value. Like, oh, I must be pretty spiffy if, if God uh, really gave himself up for me. That, that puts it, we're going we're gonna to get to that here in a minute. Christ did not die for you because you were worth it in your flesh. He dies for you to redeem you, purify you, and we are going to see present you to himself. It is all about Jesus. It's all about him. And we, as his children, receive and benefit from what he has done. So I hope we get that balance right. So number one, Christ loved us in the past. Number two, Christ loves us in the present. Verse 26, so Jesus gives himself up, Christ gave himself up that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word. Now a couple of different interpretive options here. One of the ones that I read that I do not agree with, but I'll tell you why. Some people read water and word and deduce that it's talking about baptism. Okay, so, so Jesus cleanses these people by water and the word, seeing like the baptism as the water part and then the confession that comes at baptism of Jesus Christ being Lord. So they say, okay, we have confession, we have water, that must be what it's referring to. And they're not wrong that, the, I mean, the New Testament pattern is that a person hears the gospel of Jesus Christ, repents of their sin, makes the confession that Jesus Christ is Lord and is baptized. That, that's right. I just don't think that's what this text is teaching. One of the main reasons is because Paul is making a comparison between Christ and the church. He's comparing these things and, and modeling one after the other. Baptism is a one-time thing, right? 
We, we don't continually, we're not continually baptized. So I don't think, because of what Paul is saying, he's, he's saying, okay, model yourselves after this, husbands. Paul would not say, you have a one-time obligation, husband, to minister the word to your wife. That doesn't fit. This is an ongoing thing. So I, I don't think that's what's going on here. So what does this mean? What is he talking about with this cleansing of water and word and sanctification? Let's, let's figure this out. I want to read two other texts that use similar language involving this cleansing and the, and the water and the washing. And I think this is going to help us. So 1 Corinthians chapter 6, <coughs> excuse me, chapter 11, or chapter verse 11. 1 Corinthians 6, 11. I'll get there. Just be patient with me. <clears throat> Paul has just gone through this list of some of these activities and these attitudes and these habits that were marking us before coming to Christ. All of these awful things about immorality and selfishness and sin and all this stuff. And in verse 11 he says, And such were some of you, but you were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. Hmm. Titus 3, verse 5. God saved us. Not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and the renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior. So when Paul, in Ephesians chapter 5, is talking about how Christians are purified through the washing of the water, I think he's referring to this inward cleansing that has been applied at the moment of conversion and continues to be applied through the lifelong process of sanctification, which is just a big word that means becoming like Jesus. Now, in the New Testament, the word sanctification can be used a couple of different ways. I just said one of them, becoming holy, becoming like Christ. Another use for the word is to be set apart, to be separate or distinct. So, for example, in Romans 15, Paul says that he is a minister of Christ Jesus to the Gentiles in the priestly service of God for the gospel of God, so that the offering of the Gentiles might be acceptable, sanctified by the Holy Spirit, made holy by the Holy Spirit. And I think in this text here, Paul is probably using the term sanctified in both ways, in a sense. Hang with me before you accuse me of something. Here's what I mean. When he says that Christ died to sanctify us, he means it set us apart. We are Christians. We belong to God. We have been set apart in that sanctification. And yet, when he goes on now in the text to talk about the cleansing and the washing with water and the word, I think we should see this as the ongoing process of becoming more and more like Jesus, which is what we call sanctification, becoming like Christ. Repeatedly in the scriptures, the Holy Spirit is associated with water. And cleansing. Not always, but enough that it's significant. So I take water and word. Okay, this, this is the phrase that Paul uses here. Do you see this in verse 26? 
that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word. Water, word, that connection. I think what he's talking about is the inseparable connection between the word of God and the spirit of God. Inseparable meaning you cannot separate it. They are connected together. We've talked about this before, that there is a way in which you could open your Bible and read it purely objectively, just as a book, as you would read any kind of a book. What every one of us need is the ministry of God's Spirit to work in us and through us to Open your eyes to see what is in this book, to enliven your heart so that you know what is here. Not just read it like any other book, but read it for what it is, the Word of God. And so I think this washing of water with the Word is the ministry of the Holy Spirit working through the Word of God to do everything that the Word of God tells us to do and purifies us and strengthens us and encourages us and convicts us of sin and all of the other things there. There is an inseparable connection between the Spirit of God and the Word of God. Jesus Christ shows us his love right now by giving us his Spirit and his Word. Think about this. He didn't only do the past thing, which is glorious, but he does more than that. So he doesn't just save you and say, okay, let's see if you can figure this thing out. He continually is working in you and through you, through the ministry of his Holy Spirit, washing you clean, cleansing you, giving you his word to shape and mold and direct and guide and lead and all of the other things that the Bible does. This is the ongoing ministry of the word through the ministry of the Holy Spirit. The word of God has cleansing properties. Do you know that? The Word of God has cleansing properties. It is able to shed light on our sin, but so much more than that, it also offers us a way of repentance and forgiveness. What if we only had the bad news in this book? What if all you did was open it and you're just crushed with the weight of your inadequacy and your sin and the deadness of your heart and then God just closes it and says, well, that's it. There's no hope there. But through the word of God, we have the bad news, the good news, and the way to have our sin forgiven. This is the ministry of the word of God through the spirit of God. Christ loves us in the present by giving us his word and giving us his spirit. Number three, Christ will love us in the future. Ephesians 5 verse 27 so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. What is the purpose of your Christian life? You think about that? I mean, besides from the maybe obvious or not so obvious things, but encouragement, conviction of sin, keeping us right with God, you know, all, all those kinds of things. But what, what is the purpose of your Christian life? Have you ever thought about your Christianity in terms of preparation? Have you ever thought about the circumstances and the situations of your life, all of the things that God brings you through as preparing you for something? Christ does. 
Christ thinks that way about you. And that's what we're seeing right here in this text. All of the love that he has shown in the past, all the love that he shows right now in the present, all of the ways that he provides for and preserves his church are moving us towards one great and glorious day when the bride of Christ, the church, will be presented to him, Paul says, in splendor. Do you know what splendor means? Not splenda, you put that in your coffee. Splendor means magnificent, glorious, majestic. Do you feel majestic this morning? I don't. But Paul doesn't say we are that right now. He says this is what is going to happen. Christ is going to present the church to himself cleansed. How does he do that? Well, I think that everything that happens in our life, every disappointment, every loss, every failure, every circumstance, Every season of wrestling with God, praying for family, not getting the answer to your prayer, all of that effort going into that, all of it is working for you, a purification that will present you to Christ as the bride that he deserves. We are all stained by sin, all of us, unworthy to have a husband like Christ. And yet in his grace and his compassion and his love, which we're seeing right here, he walks us through some of the worst times to purify you and me so that in the future we have this demonstration of the love of Christ in this unbelievable way where he says, you are beautiful and perfect. Christ will demonstrate his love for us in the future. All of this, everything in your life has been working towards. This is why I say we need to think about your Christian life in terms of preparation. Where is it leading you to? You're not just a Christian if you belong to Christ for this world. You were made for another world. You were made for another existence. You were made for another relationship, namely to be the bride of Christ. So do you think about your Christianity in terms of preparation? And if you do, what does that mean? (laughs) Does that change anything for you? Knowing this is your future. It's one of the reasons Paul includes this. This is where we're headed. This This is our future. So are you preparing yourself to be the kind of bride that is acceptable to Christ? All of this preserving, all of this sustaining is for the purpose of presenting you and I blameless before God. And this is a result of God's electing love. We see this. Go back to the first chapter of Ephesians, just a couple pages back in your Bible. The same phrase is used. Ephesians chapter 1, look at verse 3. Paul Paul opens this with this stunning information. In verse 3 he says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. 
Same phrase as chapter 5, verse 27. Holy and without blemish. Same word. I don't know why he said it two different ways. So that's the beginning. Chapter 1's the beginning. Before the foundation of the world, God chose you that you would be holy and without blemish. And then in chapter 5, we see the consummation of this. That at the end of all things, when Jesus Christ returns to gather his church, all of those who belong to him will be presented as this perfect and spotless bride. The bride that Jesus deserves. The bride that he purchased with his blood the bride that he sustained through every circumstance of your life and then one day will receive to himself for everlasting joy in God. You gotta see the end from the beginning. You gotta see the whole thing put together. This is not haphazard. This is not coincidental. There is intentionality and plan. And the reason that I draw our attention to this is to remind you that everything that goes on in your life is not random. (laughs) It's not just, oh, well, that was kind of weird. No, everything is moving you towards this end of being purified for Christ. There's no hope in randomness. Is there? I mean, if you look at your life and you say, oh, this is just meaningless, there's no point to this, what hope is there? God, it's no glory from random. He gets glory from design, purpose, intentionality. That's exactly what we see right here. So I tell you this and emphasize this this morning, that the future that you have in Christ ought to motivate us. It ought to be a refreshing breath of air for us to realize that everything that goes on in your life is not meaningless. And I know that in a room this size, there is represented decades of hurt. Years of struggle. I do not mean to make it sound like, well, no matter what you go through, you just count it pure joy. You know what I mean. We need to come to the place where we understand this text. That we understand that the love of Christ shown to us in the past on the cross shown to us in the present through the ministry of his word, through his Holy Spirit, will not stop when you physically die, but will continue because you will one day be presented to Jesus Christ as a glorious bride in splendor. Now I know maybe the language of bride is not the thing that you would choose, but it is what it is. Get over it, men. We are the bride of Christ, the church. And he is purifying us to present us to himself. So, if all of this is true, if the past, present, and future love of Christ is this reality that the Bible presents, then I have to ask, do you know this Christ? I don't mean do you know about him. (laughs) I'm not asking if you know facts about Jesus. Facts about Jesus saves no one. Knowing details about Jesus does not save you. The only thing that will wash you clean, cleanse you from sin, bring you into the body of Christ and secure your future is to humbly repent of your sin, turn away from it, and give your life to Christ. There's no other way. You cannot cleanse yourself. 
Only the blood of Jesus has cleansing power. Normally, things that are red stain, right? Juice, paint, whatever. The church that we rent from here, we aren't allowed to use red grape juice for communion because they don't want to stain the carpet, which is valid, right? The blood of Jesus doesn't stain. It cleanses. And the only way that you can have your future secured and know the love of Christ is to put your faith and trust in him. Turn away from yourself. You cannot save yourself. Only Christ can save you. In a couple moments, we're coming to the table to celebrate this atoning sacrifice of Jesus. What better time to turn from your sin and come to him, lay your burdens at the cross and let him carry them. He loved you in the past. He loves you in the present and he will love you in the future. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the revelation of your word. Thank you, Lord, for the sacrifice of your son, Jesus Christ. Thank you for the great love that was displayed when we were not only clueless, but guilty and lost in sin with a heart of stone that had no hope of coming to life. But through the blood of Jesus and through the atoning sacrifice, we can be made new. You will take out that heart of stone and replace it with a heart of flesh that beats and pumps and delivers life to our body. I pray that every one of us in this room would know this reality that Christ loves us. Thank you for this plan. Thank you, Lord, that your son, Jesus Christ, did what Adam failed to do. That he perfectly obeyed, he perfectly lived, he perfectly died to redeem for himself a people, a church, who will one day stand before him in beauty and radiance, not because of our own worth, but because of what Jesus has done. So, Father, motivate us Give us the strength to view our Christian life as preparation. That we would think and live and make decisions with eternity in mind. That's where we're headed. And I pray that we would have boldness to share this gospel, this good news with everyone that we see. And would you grow your church through the gospel of your son. And it's in his name that I pray. Amen. Amen.